presented by Pharma. Hey, good morning, Playbookers. I'm Rogu Munavalin. It's Wednesday. Senator Lindsey Graham's new proposed abortion bill isn't exactly going over very well. It's her Politico Playbook Daily Briefing. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade back in June, most Republicans stuck to a simple message. The decision merely sent the issue back to the states. It was not a prelude to any national ban on abortion. Senator Lindsey Graham tossed all that out the window on Tuesday, dropping a bill that would implement a nationwide ban on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy while allowing states to pass more restrictive laws. The immediate effect was to put fellow Republicans, who had already been on their heels over Roe's reversal, straight onto their butts. At a Capitol Hill news conference on Tuesday, Graham promoted his bill as good policy and good politics, noting that it would align U.S. abortion law with the rest of the industrialized world while giving GOP officeholders and candidates a proposal to rally around. Instead, the opposite happened. The GOP scattered in response, while Democrats all over the country began salivating. One even told Playbook last night, Graham's stunt is a godsend and helps us remind voters Republicans want to ban abortion everywhere. On a day when President Joe Biden should have been on the defensive after the monthly inflation report came in hotter than expected, Politico colleagues Chris Cadillago and Jonathan Lemire write that Graham's bill gave Biden an unexpected soft landing. Graham's legislation even surprised top Republican operatives, the pair right, who likened the bill to a slow telegraphed pitch down the middle of the plate. Several confessed to first learning about the legislation Monday through Sean Hannity's Fox News program. It was hard to find Republican officials and operatives who would defend the proposal. Jonathan Allen, Mark Caputo, and Scott Wong write for NBC that Republicans across the country dismiss Graham's bill as what they state is a distraction that divides the GOP and reminds voters that most of them see the party as too extreme on abortion. That included many of Graham's Senate colleagues, some of whom, Politico's Burgess Everett, Marianne Levine, and Sarah Ferris report were highly perplexed at Graham's decision to introduce a new abortion ban, more conservative than his previous proposals, at a precarious moment for the party. You've probably heard the news by now that Ken Starr, independent counsel in the Clinton investigation, among other roles, died yesterday at the age of 76. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter here at Politico, and John Harris, founding editor at Politico and author of The Survivor, Bill Clinton and the White House, are here to talk about its political legacy. Josh, John, how's it going? Good to be with you. Hey, good to be with you, Raghu. I figure I'll begin with this. Uh, John, you wrote in a piece reflecting on the Clinton impeachment trial back in 2018, the 20-year anniversary. It was the first time as a journalist I experienced political events at close range and thought, I can't believe this is happening. It feels like a hallucination. Uh, does it still feel like a hallucination when you think about Ken Starr? Well, it seems like a very distant hallucination of a uh, of a different age. Incidentally, on the night that that uh, the Monica Lewinsky uh, story broke, and uh, uh, which led, of course, later to the impeachment, um, uh, I was with Josh Starr. Then, uh, excuse me, I was, with, excuse me, I was with Josh Gerstein. Then, with ABC News um, uh, in the White House briefing room. Uh, and I think we both had a similar sense of incredulity. Uh, to me, I'll think of Ken Starr. Uh, it, it's hard for me to wrest him from this context. It was a mortal antagonism between he and Bill Clinton. Starr did a lot of damage to Bill Clinton and his presidency. In, in the end, I think probably uh, uh, Clinton prevailed not just in the, uh, the political argument over impeachment, but I think in the historical argument of what that episode was all about. Uh, others may disagree. Josh may disagree. 
the, the, I will say this for the, the, the time, the degree of venom that existed between these two camps was uh, astonishing. It, in many ways, was a forerunner for what now we're so used to as the politics of contempt, that venom has become our daily lifeblood. Yeah, I, I agree with um, with John that the whole episode da- wound up damaging Clinton and, and probably, you know, may have taken away his right to be called a great president just because uh, he had to divert so much time and attention to the star uh, to the star probe. Uh, but in the end, uh, you know, he he emerged victorious with you know, higher popularity ratings. And I mm-hmm. think a sense of among the American public, even among some Republicans, and we can talk about this as we go on, that, you know, he became the victim in that situation and, and basically was not treated fairly. I guess I feel like, as John was getting to at the end there, it doesn't seem like that distant a memory to me and that I feel like we've been living those sorts of battles um, certainly through the Trump years, but even, you know, before the Trump years, uh, as Hillary Clinton was, was running for president, um, against Trump, uh, and, and even through the Trump campaign in 2016, you see these echoes of this kind of politicized justice, politicized prosecution that started and really invent, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you can go back and look at some less publicized independent counsel prosecutions uh, from that era or earlier and see the same elements in them. But he became the epitome of it. He became the thing that the public knew, uh, the the poster child, if you will, for a prosecution that had gotten out of control. And he, he may single-handedly be the one who killed the um, independent counsel law in the United States uh, in 1999, uh, which, you know, is probably one of his more significant, if unintentional, uh, accomplishments. I'm not going to pretend I've covered politics as long as you guys have. You're titans in the industry. But I feel like I wrote this down where, you know, at Politico, we're sometimes told that you cover politics like a sport. I feel like Ken Starr was one of the first athletes when it comes to politics as a sport. Like he was one of the first characters I really remember that was really trying to win at any cost. You know, I think you have to um, uh, make a distinction between how Ken Starr viewed himself and how he came to be viewed. Uh, I don't think that there was any doubt in Ken Starr's mind that he was doing something righteous. He was enforcing the law. He was um, doing his duty as a prosecutor um, as uh, as he saw it that duty and as he thought the law gave him a clear mandate, a clear responsibility to do. Um, he was seen by others as a kind of a, um, you know, Arthur Dimsdale figure, if you re- remember from high school, uh, the Scarlet Letter. He was this priggish moralist. Uh, and, and what's more, he was a hypocrite, uh, that he was saying that this was really all about upholding the law. But many people saw it at the time, and I think many people see it in retrospect, that it was a partisan vendetta, uh, that the law was a pretense uh, for a, uh, a prosecution that was aimed at destroying Bill Clinton personally and that was fundamentally about um, uh, disgust with his personal life and the affair with Monica Lewinsky. Um, I don't think he saw himself as a figure of sport. I think he saw himself as, as, as something more exalted than that. I must say I see him in retrospect as one of the early combatants in these uh, battles that have now become routine and they've become nonstop. And and I would add to that that I think Starr over time uh, became 
to understand or came to understand that he was perceived that way. I think John is right that Starr continued to view himself as sort of morally righteous. And he would always talk about having had, you know, no real choice and having had to really do what he had to do, even if it was going to be unpopular. But he did eventually say that he regretted that he had gotten into the entire Monica Lewinsky phase of his investigation. Mm -hmm. But if you go back and look at what happened in that investigation, and it's it's interesting because um, with so much discussion about the Supreme Court in recent months, uh, one of our justices, uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, was a deputy to Starr and was actually quite involved in writing the Starr report. I think he served two different stints on Starr's uh, staff. And according to the reports that have come out and sort of the history as it's developed, Kavanaugh actually tried to get Starr to tone down aspects of his report and make it mm. sort of less moralizing. And Starr insisted on this um, very strong, very bold moral denunciation, you know, coupled with what many people saw as sort of a, a misdemeanor. I don't mean that in the legal sense, but a misdemeanor in the moral sense of having, you know, arguably lied under oath during a civil uh, civil deposition that somehow that uh, investigative effort in pursuit of that sort of a violation uh, uh, was excessive. But there's no question that Starr felt he was um, committing a moral right by pursuing this quarry of Bill Clinton because I think they viewed Clinton as morally depraved and some Americans agreed with him. The question mm -hmm. was um, whether the investigation was the proper way to vindicate that. Well, one thing I'm pondering is, is there really a through line between Republicans who were enthusiastic about Ken Starr's uh, prosecution? They thought it was legally sound. They thought it was morally sound. And um, what they think now of... Uh, uh, efforts to prosecute President Trump. He's under investigation. He's not under prosecution, but of course he is under prosecution in the political sense. I have a hard time seeing somebody saying, you know what? Ken Starr was absolutely right. Um, what Bill Clinton did by lying under oath in a legal proceeding um, absolutely was a serious transgression and it was uh, worthy of the most serious prosecution. But then similarly saying, you know, I really... Let's lay off Donald Trump. This seems what he's done seems like no big deal. It's a very difficult through line for me to see logically. I think it's not so difficult for me to see once you get beyond logic and you get to the the politics of this and really the psychology of this. What um, what our politics then has in common with our politics now is that they were driven by contempt and um, um, also driven very much by calculations of of power. It's using mm -hmm. the law as a weapon or a shield. Uh, in that sense, the Clinton Starr era was a forerunner to this era that we're in now. Yeah, and I think that um, Ken Starr is also one of these figures uh, of sort of an older generation of Republican lawyers like Rudy Giuliani, uh, who have, you know, while he, he never sort of was thought of in the same terms, meaning the same kind of contempt that some people hold for Giuliani at this point, um, he's somebody, Starr was somebody whose moral compass seemed to swing somewhat wildly in the presence of Donald Trump. I mean, Trump had called Ken Starr in the 90s a lunatic, which is not a, a very kind thing to say about him. But then in, in this topsy-turvy world, we saw Starr, you know, first denounce Trump early in his presidency and then become a lawyer for him um, in the impeachment, which I think the first impeachment, which I think was just a lot for some people uh, to, to stomach the notion that it was appropriate for Bill Clinton to be impeached over this 
uh, alleged falsehood in a in a civil deposition. And yet, you know, it was completely inappropriate for Trump to be impeached over an affair of state, which involved, you know, allegedly trying to blackmail uh, a foreign country, essentially, to create an investigation of your uh, opponent. Um, again, it just seemed like the kind of reversal that would be very hard uh, to explain uh, to the average average American. Uh, and yet, you know, we've seen a number of prominent lawyers of Starr's generation, I think, sort of uh, gyrate around in in Trump's presence. And, you know, uh, some people, I think, also uh, saw some moral failings, uh, despite Starr seeing himself as someone of great moral rectitude. Uh, other moral failings later in Starr's life, uh, especially in his uh, time as president of Baylor University, where he was essentially fired mm. from that position for what was seen as a cover-up of, of um, sexual misconduct by football players uh, at, at that school. Uh, so it's definitely somebody whose reputation um, was not burnished uh, in his time uh, after serving in, uh, in federal office. Josh Gerstein, John Harris, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Here's what's up in Washington today, starting with the White House at 8.45 a.m. Eastern. President Joe Biden will depart the White House to head to Detroit, Michigan. There he'll tour the Detroit Auto Show, deliver remarks on electric vehicle manufacturing, and participate in a DNC reception. At 4.05, Biden will depart Detroit to head back to the White House. Here's what's on the vice president's calendar. At 10.25 a.m., Vice President Kamala Harris will depart D.C. to head to Buffalo, New York. There, she'll participate in a clean energy and sustainability tour at SUNY Buffalo. At 2 p.m., Harris will deliver remarks at an Inflation Reduction Act climate event. And at 4.30, Harris will depart Buffalo to head back to D.C. The Senate will meet at 10 a.m. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf, Anthony Fauci, and Assistant HHS Secretary for Preparedness and Response Don O'Connell will testify on the government's monkeypox response before the Senate Help Committee at 10 a.m. The House will meet at 10 a.m. The House Foreign Affairs Committee will receive a closed-door briefing on Iran nuclear deal negotiations at 8.30 a.m. All right, for more news on what's breaking in D.C. right now, subscribe to the Playbook newsletter. That's at politico.com playbook. Our music is composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Rogu Munavalan. Have a good Wednesday. We'll see you first thing tomorrow morning. Did you know... 39% of insured Americans say they don't understand what's covered by their insurance. Health insurance coverage should be predictable and transparent, and insured Americans agree. Learn more from our latest patient experience survey report at pharma.org.